I never get tired of hearing that song, uh, written by Horatio Spafford. He and his wife were planning to uh, travel across the seas from uh, New York to London to see D.L. Moody preach, and Spafford was delayed, and he sent his wife and four kids on ahead of him, uh, and that ship collided with another ocean liner, and Spafford's four uh, kids were drowned in the sea. And Spafford somehow found it in his heart to be able to write a song like that to worship our Lord despite this most incredible tragedy that one could ever imagine. And so uh, uh, if he can worship the Lord in those circumstances, surely whatever we're going through, we can worship the Lord as well. And so I, I just thank God for a song like that and for Horatio Spafford and that testimony. It gives me chills uh, every time I hear that song. So uh, thank you, worship team. That was, that was wonderful. Well, uh, I thank you for a week off. It was nice to be away, but I feel like uh, I was not where I was supposed to be. I felt like I was supposed to be here, uh, and I missed you uh, while I was gone. But I thank Rick. What an awesome job he did. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that very much. Uh, Rick joked that he is uh, slower and grayer, but I think that grayer is wiser. And uh, so I hope you were uh, uh, enriched by what Rick had to teach us. I know that I was. So uh, thank you, Rick. It was a blessing uh, to have you. Well, we're going to continue in our study of Acts again this week, and this week we're going to be looking at uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 42 to 14.7 uh, that Bill read to us. And uh, so uh, before we get into it, let's just start with a word of prayer. Lord God, I do thank you uh, for this amazing church. I thank you for these amazing people and uh, how wonderful it is uh, for us to gather every Sunday and be in your presence, Lord, and, and have a building to worship you from, Lord. And uh, as we consider, Lord, uh, Paul's trials and travails, uh, may we find something of value to us today uh, to teach us how we are to live in the face of trials and travails. And uh, Lord, may your Holy Spirit now come and teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I told you about my love for baseball. I also played basketball as a kid, and uh, on my freshman year of high school, I tried out for the basketball team, and I wasn't very tall, and I wasn't very good, and I thought, well, maybe I have about a 50-50 chance of making this team, and when the coach uh, posted the roster, I was thrilled uh, to see that my name uh, was on the list, so acceptance, I was accepted by the coach of this team, and then at the first practice, to my great surprise, he had me practicing with the first team, and I was like, hmm... I might have over-convinced this coach. Uh, I knew that there were guys behind me who were much better than I was, and so I got much more than I bargained for. And so there I am out playing with the first team. And it took the coach about a half a practice to realize that he had made a grave, a grave error. Uh, and for most of freshman year, I was relegated to the end of the bench, uh, sitting next to the cheerleaders, which may not sound like all that bad of a thing, but trust me, it's quite humiliating. Uh, for a freshman boy to spend his basketball season sitting next to the cheerleaders. So, initial acceptance, but then followed by a rejection. Uh, and some of that is what Paul experienced. You know, uh, even the great ones take off their uniform for the last time. Michael Jordan did it, and after freshman year of basketball, that was it for me. I did it too. So, <laughs> so that was my story. While Paul's ministry was marked by periods of acceptance and followed by rejection, and, and we'll see that uh, as we go throughout this story of how he was received at uh, Pisidian Antioch and then uh, at Iconium. And uh, in a particular location, 
uh, his ministry might start out well, but then hordes of enemies would come out and they would, they would attack him and try to uh, take him down. And, and last time, as we studied Paul's gospel, as he preached it in Pisidian Antioch, uh, today we're going to see this cycle of initial acceptance followed by rejection there, and then we'll see it as he moves on to Iconium as well. And so uh, I think we need to study this because we need to understand that if Jesus was rejected, and he was, and if Paul was rejected, uh, certainly we are going to be rejected too when we present the gospel message. So how are we going to respond when we face rejection like Jesus, like Paul, faced? But secondly, we also need to study this because we need to have in our minds how we are going to measure uh, our success in our ministry at Grace Redeemer Church and also in our own personal lives because we don't want to be easily uh, discouraged. So the first thing I want to do is to take a look at Paul's, uh, or the reaction to Paul's message as he was in a Pisidian Antioch. And so as we look at verses 42 and 43, we see uh, that Paul was initially accepted. Uh, remember from two weeks ago, when we talked about the sermon that he gave, uh, he gave them the whole gospel. And then at the end of that presentation, he gave them uh, an invitation to receive and believe. And he said in verse 38, through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you so that everyone who believes is saved from the penalty of their sins. So that's the gospel. And then he invited them to believe it. And so that's the good news, the gospel. The good news is that uh, we have salvation in Jesus Christ through faith in him. And when we believe in him for our salvation, we are saved. And he wanted them to know that. He wanted them to believe that. And the same message that was available to them is the same message that's available to us. He wants us simply to repent, believe, and be saved. And so we have the gospel message. And and the initial reaction was great, right? Uh, if I were preaching to a group of unbelievers and they reacted this positively, uh, I would be thrilled with that kind of reaction that he got. Uh, and while Paul and, Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas were still leaving the synagogue, these guys are chasing him out the door and they're saying, uh, you know, please come back, preach to us again next week. And uh, you have the Jews and you have the God-fearing proselytes. These are guys who are Gentiles who are on their way to being converted to Judaism, and, and they're following Paul and Barnabas. They couldn't get enough. Paul and Barnabas left them wanting more, right, which is what you always do, uh, and that's what he did, and he promised to come back next week, but he urged them to continue in the grace of God, and so that's what we do. We continue in the grace of God as we believe. We walk uh, by faith and obedience and trust in the Lord, and, and uh, we continue in his grace. Well, initial acceptance in Pisidian Antioch, but by the following Sabbath, it would all go downhill and would be followed by rejection. In verses 44 and 47, the next Sabbath, the whole synagogue comes out, nearly, almost everyone, to hear Paul and Barnabas preach the word of the Lord again, and, and that made the Jews jealous. So imagine I preached here for, say, 20 straight Sundays, and we had our usual wonderful attendance that we have, but then I had a week off, and you invited, say, Tony Evans to come preach at our congregation. And 2,000 people showed up to hear Tony Evans preach. Would I be jealous? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would be jealous. It's very human of me, but yes, I would be jealous. And, 
And so, uh, you know, I, I think of these synagogue leaders. They're there, they have their regular crowd, they come out and see him every Saturday. But now Paul and Barnabas come and they have a new message and they're new people and the whole city uh, is coming out to see them. There's no one sleeping in late on a Saturday morning. Uh, they're all coming out and so all the synagogue leaders uh, were jealous. And so, you know, if Tony Evans came here to preach... I would have nothing bad to say about his message. I'm sure he's going to be faithful to the gospel. He's going to be faithful to the Bible. He's going to be funny. He's going to be engaging. He'll have great applications. And we'll generally all his, love his message, and, and I will agree with his message. Uh, my problem with, with the whole situation would be that Tony Evans is just more popular than me, right? And he would bring throngs of people. And so it's not a battle against his message that I have. I would love his message. Uh, Paul and Barnabas had just preached the whole gospel in Pisidian Antioch, but these jealous Jews cared nothing about the truth. They cared about their own popularity and their own ability to keep their position uh, and their place. And so they contradicted Paul and Barnabas, and they were blaspheming. And we can't tell from the language whether that means that they were blaspheming against God or whether they were blaspheming against Paul. The word means to slander or to revile. But from Luke's language, we, we tend to get the idea that, that it was both. They were slandering and blaspheming both Paul uh, and God. So in verse 46, uh, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, and they said, it is necessary, or it was necessary, that we preach the gospel to the Jews first. And that's because the message of Jesus was primarily to the Jews. When you think about the Old Testament, the promises that were made uh, to Abraham, to David, the promises of the coming Messiah, those are promises all made to Jews. So obviously you're going to preach the gospel uh, to the Jews first. But then these Jews repudiated Paul's message and they judged themselves unworthy. And I think that's really an ironic phrase. They actually judged themselves so worthy that they would not receive what they had to say. Uh, they per their perceived worthiness is what actually makes them unworthy. And so only those who know that they are unworthy come to receive what they themselves know is lacking uh, in themselves. Only those who know that they are sinners and in need of a savior are able to come. And that's what true humility is. And Paul, he only turned to the Gentiles after the Jews rejected this message that he was giving. And so in verse 47, Paul, uh, 40, I'm sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 47, Paul quoted Isaiah 49, verse 6, which, which is a prophecy about how Jesus was going to be a light to uh, the nations and a light to the Gentiles. And so turning to the Gentiles was not Paul's idea. Turning to the Gentiles was God's idea. He said it from the very beginning, even in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham was called, he said that I'm going to bless all the nations through you. So this should not have been a surprise to anyone. Paul was only doing uh, what the Old Testament said that he would do. This was the will of God. And as soon as he turned to the Gentiles, he found more acceptance following this rejection. So verses 48 and 49, the Gentiles rejoiced because they had been included in God's blessing and in God's plan of salvation. And so a bad decision for the Jews not to accept Paul's gospel was good news for these Gentiles because now they understand that they are included uh, in uh, God's plan. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, it's impossible to miss the doctrine of elect election in the New Testament. It's in there all over the place. This verse is a great example. Here are a few others. 
Uh, Ephesians 1.4, God chose us, or Christ chose us before God formed the world. John 6.44, no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 15.16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I could cite a hundred more, I'm sure. And yet, though God is sovereign, we are still responsible for our decisions. And we've seen both of these, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, in Acts a few times already. Remember back in Acts chapter 2, we saw verses 38 and 39. Repent and believe, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So repent and believe, that's the human part of it. This promise is for you and as many as the Lord will call to himself. That is the sovereignty part of it. Acts 4.27 and 4.28 Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appoint anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Human decision to go and crucify Jesus, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God's sovereignty, all working together. And it's amazing how human choices coincide exactly with what God had planned uh, and in his sovereignty. So I want to give you an illustration from a, a guy, a scholar named Alva McLean, who tries to reconcile how a God's sovereignty and human freedom and, and choices work together. He said, imagine a gate into the Garden of Salvation. And on the outside of the gate, there's a big sign. Uh, and it says, whoever will may come. And responding to this grace, gracious invitation, we walk through, assuming we have made this choice voluntarily. There's nothing outside the gate or outside the sign that says that we must respond, nothing that says that it's preordained that we do respond. And from this perspective, it appears to be exclusively our choice and our free will. But once we're inside the gate and we are enjoying all the beauties of the garden, we look back at the gate and we see a sign, the sign over the gate from the inside. And this sign says, chosen in him from the foundation of the world. And so we realize that both are true from our perspective. We have chosen Christ. We have believed the gospel. We have trusted him for salvation. But from God's perspective, he has made everything possible that led up to including our choice to believe. And so it's both. And we're never going to understand exactly how it works uh, on this side of eternity. Uh, But we've already seen it in Acts uh, several times and we'll continue to see it, that God is sovereign and yet man has a real choice, and is really responsible for his decision. Well, we're not told how many people believed, but in verse 49, the cycle continues. The word of God was being spread throughout the whole region. So great, acceptance again, the word is being accepted. And it's not known how long this period of success lasted, but uh, for the word to spread throughout the whole region, probably several months are in view here. Uh, And so, The word is spreading, but with that becomes more intense and more increased rejection and opposition that we see in verses 50 uh, and 51. So as we get there, we see that Luke makes a distinction between uh, these Jews and the devout women and leading men of the city. And that's because probably those devout uh, women and leading men of the city were Gentiles. 
Uh, and scholars say that, that these Gentile women, they were attracted to Judaism because their lifestyle under Judaism was so much safer and so much better than it was uh, under the pagan rituals. Uh, women were treated better. They weren't subjected to uh, drunken orgies and pagan rituals so that they, they rose up uh, to defend Judaism and to oppose Paul's preaching. And so we see that the battle lines are not drawn along ethnic lines anymore. It's not necessarily uh, Jews against Gentiles. Here we have Jews and Gentiles opposing Christianity. So the battle lines are now along, are you a believer in Jesus Christ or aren't you? And, and that's where we see this battle line drawn. And so a mob of Gentiles and Jews arose that was powerful enough uh, to evict Paul and Barnabas from the city. And so they leave. And they follow Jesus' command, which says that if you are not received, you shake the dust off of your feet as you leave them. And so uh, that showed symbolically when people were returning from a foreign land back to the Holy Land, they would shake the dust off of their sandals to show that they were not going to contaminate uh, the Holy Land with the dust and defilement over wherever they had been. And so here we have Paul uh, shaking off the dust to show that he's not responsible uh, for their a decision not to accept Jesus Christ as their savior. Uh, and so uh, he does that, and he's going to head off to the next city of Iconium, where we're going to see this, this cycle of acceptance and rejection uh, continue on. So as they move into, or as they leave Pisidian Antioch, they were continually filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, if I had just been tossed from a city like a common criminal, I might be discouraged uh, but Paul and Barnabas, they never focused on the negative. They had made many converts. They had made many disciples. They had started a church in Pisidian Antioch, and on their way back on this missionary journey, they would visit there again, and they would appoint elders in that city because there were believers and a church established there. And so that's much to rejoice about. Uh, who cares if a couple people persecute you and toss you out of a city? Uh, one soul saved is worth much rejoicing and they had seen many souls be saved. And so that was a beautiful thing that happened at Pisidian Antioch. And so they move forward, uh, or westward, I should say, to Iconium. And I'll show it to you on the map. They're in Pisidian Antioch here. They move about 90 miles west to this place uh, called Iconium. Turning to the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch, uh, was something that they did when they were rejected by the Jews, but it was not a decision never to preach to the Jews again. That was simply for that particular location. Uh, and he'll do it again, of course, but it didn't mean that he wasn't going to preach to Jews anymore. As they entered Iconium, they went right back into the synagogue, trying to preach to the Jews first, repeating their pattern of going to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. Paul never gave up on the Jews. If you read Romans 9 to 11, Paul had a sincere desire and a sincere belief that these Jews were not forsaken by God and that they would ultimately be saved as a nation. He loved his people even though they rejected him. And immediately their message was accepted in this synagogue in Iconium. Large numbers of Jews and Gentiles believed. So great, acceptance again. But then as soon as they had acceptance, uh, Quickly, it turned to opposition. And we see uh, this acceptance in, verse, uh, uh, in verses, uh, verse 1 and then rejection in verse 2. So these Jews who did not believe, they were able to stir up or embitter or poison the minds of these Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. And you can imagine this scene as Paul was, was speaking. You know, these, 
These Jews were not so well-mannered as you folks are, sitting there nice and quietly and listening uh, with great manners to what I have to say. Uh, they were not like that. They were standing on their feet and they were shouting louder than Paul and they were contradicting everything that he had to say and trying not to let him speak because they didn't want to hear his message. Uh, they interrupted him constantly and as they did so, they were able to corrupt some of these Gentiles against uh, what Paul was saying, and they create this mob mentality as they all uh, join up in unison to oppose them. But then when we come to verse 3, we see that the persecution did not stop Paul and Barnabas. They stayed there. They kept right on preaching uh, this gospel. They stayed there a long time, speaking boldly, testifying to what God had done, God's grace. And, and God gave them miracles and wonders to authenticate their witness. And we've also seen that many times in Acts already, when these apostles were faithful to preach the word, to preach the gospel, God gave them signs and wonders that they performed uh, through their hands. And so uh, that, that is just uh, something that, that we see over and over again, is that, that uh, these apostles were faithful and God does signs. And so it tells us that we need to be faithful to what God has given us to do. Uh, we're faithful to the calling that God has to us. God just wants us to preach the word. He wants us to love the people. He wants us to share the gospel with each other. And when we do that, we're being faithful, we're being obedient, and God is going to bless the work of our hands too. It's not going to be roses all the time, right? It wasn't for Paul. It wasn't for Jesus. We should not expect that it will be for us either. But we must be faithful regardless of the circumstances. We'll be opposed, we'll be mocked like Paul was. But Paul stayed in Iconium and preached there a long time and many sided with him. That means he was making converts. People were being saved, so great acceptance. And so uh, he's making these converts, but there is going to be opposition. Wherever the gospel is preached, there's going to be opposition. And so we see in verses four to seven that, that acceptance again is followed once more by rejection. So verse, verses four to seven tell us that the city was divided uh, and that's what the gospel does. John 14, six says, uh, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but through me. That's a divisive statement. Some people will come through him. Some will refuse to. John 1.12 says, But as many as believed God, he gave them the right to become children of God, born not of the will of flesh or of man, but of God. And so again, you see in that verse, people have a decision to make, but it's all of God. We see sovereignty and responsibility working together at the same time. So some people are going to believe the gospel. Other people are not going to believe the gospel. And that's where the division comes. And when we preach it, we should not be surprised that it creates division, that it creates hostility. Jesus said, brother will be divided against brother. So we should not be at all surprised when division happens. Well, this place of Iconium was a little bit like the Wild West. Somehow they had resisted strict Roman authority and they hadn't uh, succumbed completely to Roman rule. And so uh, they were able to get away with some things perhaps that they would not have gotten away with if they were strictly being ruled uh, by the Romans. And so uh, these people took, uh, of Iconium took the law into their own hands and they were going to pick up stones and they were going to stone Paul and Barnabas, which they would never be allowed to do if Rome was in charge. Then Rome obviously controlled uh, any kind of uh, crime and punishment. And so this mob would not have been able to do this. Uh, but when Paul and Barnabas found out about this plot to kill them, what did they do? They fled to another city. Now, 
Was that cowardly? No, that was not cowardly at all. When God gives us a way of escape, it's okay to take that way of escape as long as that way of escape does not require us to renounce our faith. Now, there may be other times where the only way out is to renounce our faith, and that's when we're called to die for our faith. If God doesn't give us another way out and the only way out is to renounce our faith, then that's God saying to you, uh, I would like you to die for me, like Paul was required to die for him. And so uh, it's honoring to, to die for God when the only way to save our lives is to uh, renounce our faith. And, and it's, it's uh, these faithful apostles left Iconium and then they went on to other cities and they preached the gospel there. And that was God honoring to do that. So in Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, we see this repeated cycle of acceptance followed by rejection and acceptance followed by rejection, and it should remind us very much of Jesus' Passion Week, right? The Saturday before he was crucified, they threw him a parade, right? Donkeys and, and uh, palms on the road, and then the following Friday, they crucified him. Acceptance followed by rejection. If it happened to Jesus, if it happened to Paul, we should not be surprised if it happens to us. So, I have a couple of questions for us. How do we measure success in our ministry here? And the only way I think we can answer that question is to ask another question, and that is, what are our goals? Because you can't measure success unless you know what your goals are. First of all, and Paul's main goal in life was to be obedient to his call on his life. It wasn't necessarily to save souls. It wasn't necessarily to do anything except to obey what God commanded him to do. And so all the preaching that God did, all or that Paul did, all the soul saving that Paul did, they were byproducts of Paul's walking in obedience with God. And so as I think about that, I think about how we measure success in our church body and individually. So measuring success in ministry as a church body we know that it was God's sovereign plan for us to own this building here in Garland. And we know that God provided the funds so that we could renovate this building. And, and if we know these things, we must also know that God has a plan for us here in Garland in this building. Uh, and so we don't know specifically what that plan is. God has not parted the clouds and said, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. But he has spoken to us very generally in the Bible, telling us what he wants us to do. He's given us the Bible. He's given us the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. So that's God's plan for us. That's what God wants us to do. And so our call then is simply to be faithful to that great commission and go and make disciples. And so we listen for God's voice and we look to see where our neighborhood has needs and we try to meet those needs uh, where we can. We help where we can. We try to bless people who need blessing and we, we look for opportunities to share the gospel today and we look to build relationships with people so we may have an opportunity to share the gospel with them in the future. We want them to know that Christ died for their sins and that he's coming again and that by belief in him they can be saved and we want them to know that there is hope even for those who think that they have no hope for the most hopeless of all there is hope in Jesus Christ and so we want them 
to know that. Well, last week, you know that we had coffee and donuts for uh, the teachers and the parents next door at O. Henry School. And that was great. We brought all our flyers. We brought a bunch of food and coffee for them. And we had about, I don't know, maybe 100 parents come through and grab a flyer and have a donut and some coffee with us. And we were all excited about that. And we, we invited them to come to our back to school bash. And we were really hopeful that a whole lot of people would come. Well, we may have had six or seven families come to the back to school bash. And that seems like a very low turnout when you consider uh, the time that we spent, the food that we bought, the uh, man hours that we invested, uh, advertising on the next door website, the sign that's out on our lawn. Uh, so when we think about that, we have to ask ourselves the question, was that event a failure or was it a success? Well, it depends how you measure success, right? Uh, I measure success by asking this question. Have we been obedient to God and have we trusted him with the outcome? If that's the measure, then this event was a smashing success. God gave us an idea. He gave us the resources to do it. He, able, he enabled us to develop a relationship with the people at that school that might bear fruit in some other way in the future that we don't know about. And, and we pulled off a pretty big event. And so we should not be discouraged that we didn't have more people come. You know, there are times when measuring success by numbers works. If you're running for office, you need 51% of the vote and you will be accepted. Uh, you'll be voted in. If you're a baseball player and you get a hit 30% of the time, you're going to go to the Hall of Fame. But measuring success in ministry by numbers is completely uh, an arbitrary thing and we shouldn't measure our success that way. It's God who brings the people. Our job is to be faithful and to be obedient. And we measure success by whether we've walked faithfully with God, whether we've been obedient to God, and we trust him with the results. We have no idea what God may do with that event. Some people came. It only takes one person that we could do some incredible, miraculous thing through, through our hands that God would do through our hands with that one person. Um, that's God's work. I want to tell you a story about uh, my brother-in-law, Molly's brother, uh, they had four boys and they wanted to have a girl and so they went to an adoption agency and it was an open adoption agency and uh, they were looking through files and then the birth mother was looking through files and, and the birth mother happened upon uh, Paul and Lois's family and she didn't know anything about Christianity but she heard that Christians were nice people. And so when she was choosing the, 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 the family that was going to adopt her daughter, they chose Paul and Lois Weber's family because they were nice people. Christians are nice people. That's all she knew about Christians. And so they adopted this little girl who was named after my lovely wife. Her name is Molly also. And uh, they have raised this girl now for 13, almost 14 years. And she's a Christian. They have had a relationship with the birth mother because it was an open adoption. The birth mother became a Christian through their ministry. The birth mother's mother became a Christian before she died, so she's saved. And so you just never know what God can do with one person. So we don't count numbers. We minister to the people that God has given us. And that's just a wonderful, amazing story. And I'm sure you have stories like that that you could tell of God doing the miraculous just because he opened the door and gave us one person. Uh, so the bottom line is, is if we're measuring success by numbers, we're using the wrong measure. Uh, Noah built an ark for 120 years, right, Bill? And during that entire time, uh, he was preaching 
And how many converts did you make? Zero. If you measure success by numbers, you're using the wrong measure, right? You measure success by obedience. Noah was faithful. He was obedient to God's word. He preached to these people, and he built an ark, even though it had never rained. This ark was enormous. Can you imagine the abuse that Noah took while this was going on? And Paul took a ton of abuse, right? He was constantly being berated when he wasn't being actually beaten, but he never measured success by numbers, and he never stopped preaching, even in the face of rejection. Look at this verse. Uh, Did I miss a verse? I guess I didn't put it up there. Uh, The verse is 2 Timothy 3. Paul wrote to Timothy, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, out of all of them the Lord rescued me. So when Paul wrote that verse, he's thinking about what happened to him in these two little Vignettes that we just read at Pisidian Antioch and at uh, Iconium, he suffered some of these things, persecutions and sufferings and beatings that we read about in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, They would have happened on this trip, but Paul was not discouraged. He just kept on going on in obedience to God, preaching the gospel and making converts. So how does this translate to our lives individually? Uh, I ask the same question. How do we measure success? The answer is the same. Are we being faithful and obedient? And, And here's some questions that I would ask us. To determine if we're being obedient, we ask ourselves these questions. How do I make decisions about how I spend my money? How do I decide what's the best use of my time? How do I react when I face adversity, when I lose my job, if I get a poor diagnosis, if my family rejects me? If I try to evangelize and it goes badly, how do I avoid discouragement when I think things should turn out differently than they have? We trust God. We obey God. He is sovereign. Nothing can happen outside of God's will. He has a plan. He uses everything for his purposes. I love this verse, Psalm 119.91. All things are his servants. All things Whatever happens, whether we are accepted, whether we are rejected, at work, at home, family, or friends, whoever rejects us, rather than get discouraged, we should be encouraged because we have been uh, faithful to God, obedient to him, and we have trusted him with the results. We understand that he is sovereign and that all things are his servants, and that's how we define success. As a church and in our personal lives, we trust and obey. You know the hymn, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you. We thank you that you have been so gracious to us for our salvation, first of all, Lord, Your son died on a cross so that we could have our salvation if we will believe. And then, Lord, that you sanctify us daily, making us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, through whatever things come your way, because all things are your servants, Lord, and you use those things to make us more like your son. And Lord, we rejoice that you give us the opportunity to share the gospel and to minister from this amazing building that you have given us, Lord. And 
Help us not to be discouraged. Help us to be encouraged and help us to continue to look for opportunities to serve, Lord. We are here to serve. We want to be your servant and we serve you by serving the people around us, Lord. And so we continue to ask for opportunities to be your servants here uh, until your son returns, Lord. And we look forward to that glorious day. And we pray in Jesus' matchless name, Lord. Amen.